All right. Yes, our topic tonight, what we're going to do is basically we're going to look at a prophecy of Christ's first coming, which is found in the Old Testament book of Daniel, and then we're going to segue into a prophecy regarding his second coming or some signs that Jesus gave us that we should be looking for um, when it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, I think this presentation will be both uh, informative as well as inspirational, and that's my prayer. So uh, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get straight into it. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the opportunity we have of being here together this evening. We want to thank you for your word, which uh, never leaves us untouched. Lord, as we read it over and over again, uh, the power in it uh, is always there, Lord. It's, it's, never, it's never that we run out of, uh, of the power source. Thank you that uh, we have it available and among us also this evening. And Lord, I want to pray that you'll bless in a very special way your word and the study of it this evening. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us in this study. For I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the course of our time together so far, we have really been looking at a variety of Bible prophecies. And uh, I think I mentioned this on the opening night, that Bible prophecy is like the signature of God. Something happens and God just signs it and he confirms it and he already knew it. And prophecy is amazing because it shows the trustworthiness of God and how each time he says something, he predicts something and it comes to pass. He predicts something else and it comes to pass. And when this happens, you can really sense that God is trying to teach us and show us that he can be trusted, that we can actually build our lives upon the teachings of his word. And uh, so this evening we want to look at some more Bible prophecy. And um, there are a lot of Bible prophecies in both the Old and the New Testament. And many of the prophecies in the Old Testament, they revolve around the first coming of Jesus, even though also you will find prophecies in the Old Testament that point to the second coming of Jesus. Uh, and I think on the first or second night, I can't remember exactly, we, uh, we actually, I actually showed this slide here with just quickly some of these prophecies that were made regarding the first coming of Jesus. For example, there's a prophecy in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 concerning the place where Jesus would be born. And does anyone remember what place that was? Bethlehem, exactly. And we find the fulfillment there in the New Testament story. Um, also, we have prophecies regarding the circumstances of the birth of Jesus that a virgin would conceive, as we read about in Isaiah chapter 7. And um, in Genesis chapter 49, all the way back in Genesis, we have a prophecy concerning out of which tribe Jesus would come. He would come from the tribe of Judah. Uh, you know, and, and this is important for us to look at these prophecies because some people will say, you know what? When it comes to Bible prophecy, maybe Jesus just knew those prophecies. Certainly he did. He, rolled, he read the Old Testament. He read the Torah. He read the Scriptures. And maybe he was just trying to fulfill those prophecies. But obviously there are prophecies that are beyond the control of any human being when it comes to the birthplace and the circumstances of your birth and the tribe from which you come or the nationality from which you come. Those are certainly not things that you can control. And uh, so it's very clear that these prophecies find their fulfillment in Jesus and that Jesus is really the one that doesn't just fulfill some of them or most of them, but all of them. And that is really, again, the signature of God on this event. 
We have prophecies concerning uh, that Jesus would come from, uh, from, from David, the son of David, as, as we find in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And what we're going to do this evening is look at a prophecy in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, concerning the very time of the first coming of Christ. And this is a powerful prophecy, a very significant prophecy, and one that, again, really confirms our faith in Scripture. So what we're going to do this evening in our first presentation, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 9. We're going to look at a prophecy that talks about the first coming of Christ. We're going to see that he was exactly on time. But then more than that, we're not going to just remain there as it, as it being a historic um, fulfillment and a historic prophecy, but then we're going to take that same prophecy and we're going to actually um, learn some lessons from it because that prophecy in many ways um, shows us also um, what is to come. Uh, some of the events around this prophecy are very significant for you and for me living today. Um, what I like to refer to, or what many Bible scholars will refer to here, is typology. There are uh, things that have happened in the Old Testament that kind of repeat themselves on a worldwide scale um, in, in, in our times today. So the Bible is an interesting book because when you read stories in the Old Testament, though they are wonderful faith-building stories that have really taken place in past history, they are also stories that in a, in a very real way and beautiful way picture things that are going to come even in our very world today. This is what we can refer to as typology or shadows. There's a shadow and it meets its fulfillment. And so we're going to see how that works this evening uh, also regarding this uh, prophecy here. And yes, it speaks about Christ's first coming, but there are also events that really picture what things are going to be like before he comes the second time. So um, we're going to get right into that. Um, and so we're going to go to the book of Daniel. And uh, in the book of Daniel, Old Testament book, uh, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background here. Many of you are familiar with this story. Uh, Daniel was a young man, probably still in his teens, when Babylon, which was um, the great conquering nation at that time, conquered Judah and destroyed Jerusalem, where Daniel lived. And Daniel was taken captive along with many other Jews, and they were taken to Babylon. And when you read the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, it starts right out there in the first chapter with the story of how they were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then you go into the rest of the story, and basically it's the story of the prophet Daniel living in Babylon, receiving dreams and visions and prophecies from God in this foreign land. And uh, remarkable prophecies, some of which we have looked at during the, in the course of these, this seminar here. Remember uh, the statue uh, in Daniel chapter 2, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, with these different metal, this man made of different metals and how Daniel basically interprets that dream as, as different kingdoms that will come and fall. Powerful. We looked at that uh, on our opening night. And then you have prophecies like in Daniel chapter 7 about these beasts coming up out of the sea. And uh, there's an angel there instructing Daniel concerning those beasts. And he says to Daniel, these four beasts are four kingdoms. And we looked there at the different kingdoms that came and fell. And we even looked at the arise of this antichrist power of Bible prophecy. Lots of fascinating, um, incredible stuff there in these prophecies. And you just look at history and you see how prophecy and history are just right beside each other. It's like hand in hand. Uh, and uh, it just confirms over and over again the authenticity and trustworthiness of the scriptures. 
Now, the prophecy that we're going to look at this evening is found in Daniel chapter 9. And uh, what had happened is Daniel was in Babylon now for a long time. And when we get to the chapter 9 uh, of the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel is very mindful of the fact that they are soon, that the Jews are soon going to be released to return back to Jerusalem. Now, why did he believe that? He believed that based on another prophecy of another prophet that lived prior to him, and that was the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, a book that you also find in the Old Testament, said he had written a prophecy and said that they would be 70 years in captivity in Babylon. So Daniel was mindful and aware of that prophecy. And now, as we get to Daniel chapter 9, those 70 years were about to run out. And so he is aware that, hey, the time of captivity is coming to an end. Soon we are going to go back to Jerusalem, go back to Judah, and we're going to be able to restore the kingdom again. And so Daniel chapter 9, what we find there is that Daniel is praying. He's praying for his people because he realizes that the reason why they are in captivity is really because they had walked contrary to the ways of God. They had, they had turned away from the commandments of God, and they had followed other nations around them, The calamity had come upon them and they were taken captive. The 70 years had passed of captivity. They're about to return and Daniel is praying for his people that there will be a spirit of revival and reformation in their midst so that as they return, they will be able to fulfill the very purpose for which they were raised up, for which they existed, and that was to put the very glory of God, the light of God on display for the nations around them. So this is where we uh, come into Daniel chapter 9. And I want you to just take notice of of these words here. Daniel chapter 9, and I'm reading here beginning in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, which was was a king of the Medo-Persian empire, uh, of the lineage of the Medes, as it says here, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books, the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish how many years? 70 years of desolations of Jerusalem. So Daniel is aware this period is coming to an end. Soon we're going to be able to return to Jerusalem. Now, We go on here in Daniel chapter 9, and you can go back and read the entire chapter. It's really a beautiful prayer that Daniel prays for the people. Um, But as we jump down to verse 21, I want you to take notice because his prayer is interrupted. I mean, uh, in a good way. I wish my prayers were interrupted this way. Because what happens is while he is praying, the angel Gabriel visits him. How many of you would like that to happen? Oh, yeah. And and gives him instruction concerning what is going to happen with the people of God, with the Jews, um, as they are ready to return and restore and rebuild um, their city and their their country. And and this is what the angel says, powerful. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 21. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. 
And here comes a prophecy. Here we, here we are launched into a prophecy that Gabriel gives to Daniel regarding his people, which are the Jewish nation. Take notice what Gabriel says, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So a list of things are given that have to happen within a certain time period, and the time period is 70 weeks. Gabriel says, okay, 70 weeks I give to your people, right, for your people, for your holy city, that's talking about Jerusalem, okay, to do what? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins. Now, that's interesting because we've got to understand these words in the context of where they are. Remember, they had come, let, let, let's just rewind the, the, the story a little bit here. Remember, Abram was called, Abram had a son by the name of Isaac, Isaac had a son by the name of Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons which became the 12 tribes. They were led into Egypt where they lived their prosperous life for a while, but then they were enslaved. God led them out of Egypt by Moses, through the wilderness for 40 years, entered into Canaan, overthrew Canaan, established the land. They were to be a light unto the nations, but instead of being a light unto the nations, they absorbed the practices of the nations, which were stooped in idolatry and pagan worship. And so instead of being a light, they became dark. And so God, in order to shake them up, sent the king of Babylon. They are taken captive into Babylon for 70 years, and now they are about to return. What is the purpose of their return? To be a light unto the nations. But that Gabriel comes, and Daniel is praying, and Gabriel comes, and he says, okay, you're going to be given a second chance. You're going to be able to return, but I'm going to give you a period. The Lord is saying, I'll give you a period of 70 weeks, and if you would just sum up what has to happen in the 70 weeks, you can sum it up very simply, 70 weeks to make things right. 70 weeks to be a nation that truly portrays the character of God. 70 weeks to turn away from your transgression and sins. 70 weeks to actually usher in the Messiah, which was the promised one that would come. And, and all this would happen within these 70 weeks. It is like the Lord is giving them a probation time, a time of probation. Okay, you've got 70 weeks to make things right. And within these 70 weeks, they were to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Well, interesting. When would these 70 weeks start, and how long is this period, and what was going to happen within this period? Let's continue to look at this prophecy. Quite fascinating. In order to understand this prophecy, we must understand a very simple and yet profound principle of interpretation when it comes to Bible prophecy. And this is the, this is the uh, principle that in Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. You can find this principle in Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6, as well as in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 34. And, uh, you know, people have asked me, like, why, why is Bible prophecy given in symbolic language? And I, I think I mentioned this on an earlier uh, night that we had together. And that is very simple, because if it was given in plain language, we would, we would probably, most likely, not have the prophetic content that we have today. It would have been destroyed a long time ago. 
Remember that both Daniel the prophet in this instance and later John when he wrote the, the book of Revelation, that he is writing prophecies about the downfall of the very nations under which he is subjected, right? So if he would plainly state things, certainly these, these, these scriptures, these, these prophecies would have been destroyed a long time ago. So in order for God to preserve it, it was given in symbolic language. And I think I also mentioned this earlier, that gold is more appreciated when you dig for it than when it falls in your lap. So it's interesting. It is good for us to study these things. And, you know, some people will say, well, I don't study revelation or prophecy because it's just too difficult. It's not that difficult. If you, if, if, if you have a mind um, that wants to know the truth, even a child can understand these things. Amen? If you really want to, God will reveal these things to us. So that's a very simple principle. In, prof in prophetic time, when we're dealing with, especially when we're dealing with these prophecies here in the book of Daniel and Revelation, we apply this principle, a day equals a year. And so when we are talking about 70 weeks, what, how, how long would 70 weeks be? Well, 70 weeks, let, let's just translate it first into, uh, or interpret it first in, um, uh, in, in, in days. 70 weeks would give us how many days? 490, right? Very simply, 70 weeks. How many days do you have in a week? Seven. So 70 times seven is 490, okay? So 70 weeks is 490 days, but then we take the principle of the day-year principle, and so how, how, what is the period now? How long is it? 490 years. Very simple. So, so what Gabriel is saying to Daniel, your people are being given 490 years, okay? Now, we still don't have a beginning date, but that, but that is given as we continue to look at this prophecy in verse 25. Take notice of this. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven and sixty-two weeks. Now, we'll look at the Messiah the Prince and the seven and sixty-two weeks in just a moment. But right here in the beginning of the verse 25, we have the beginning date of the 70-week prophecy or 490 years. It is from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, there were various commands that were given regarding the restoration of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, but there was only one command that truly enabled them financially and practically to actually begin the restoration, and that was given in the year 457 B.C., in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes, he commanded that they go, and he gave them all the provisions that they needed, and they started the rebuilding of Jerusalem. 457 B.C. is clearly the date that we're looking at here as the beginning of the 70-week prophecy or the 490 years. Now, let me back up here, because what was to happen within this period? Interestingly, verse 25 tells us, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince. Now, who's Messiah the Prince? That's Jesus. So from the going forth to, uh, to, to restore the city, from the command to restore the city, there will be a time period that will elapse that will bring you to Messiah the Prince. Messiah means the anointed one. You will come to the anointed one. And how long will that take? There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, now seven and 62 is how many weeks combined? 69 weeks. So a 70-week prophecy is given, 
And it starts in 457 BC. It's 490 years if we take the day-year principle. But before this prophecy is over, before these 490 years are over, within these 490 years, the Messiah would come. And the Messiah would come in 69 weeks, right? And how many weeks, what time would that be? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. If 70 weeks is 490 years, 69 weeks is one week less. A week has seven days. You apply the day-year principle, seven years. So you subtract seven years from 490, and where does that leave us? 483, right? So 483 um, years from 457 BC, so we count 457 and we count 483 years. And interestingly enough, that brings us to the year 27 AD. The year 27 AD. Now, this is so incredible. This was the very year that Jesus was baptized. Now, the language in Daniel chapter 9 is interesting because it talks about Messiah, the prince. Now, the Messiah means the anointed one. And Jesus, in a very real sense, was anointed. Of course, he was anointed from the very beginning. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. But he began his public ministry when he came up from the waters of baptism. And remember when John the Baptist baptized him? And what happened? The heavens were opened, and the dove descended upon him. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he went forth preaching the gospel. And this was when his public ministry began. And for three and a half years, he preached the gospel, healed the sick, you know, uh, cast out demons, and did all of the wonderful things that we read about. He taught the word and uh, such. And this happened for three and a half years. And it began with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Here we have Messiah, the prince, coming on the scene. And, you know, even John the Baptist was the one that was, for, was the forerunner for Jesus, and when Jesus came to the banks of the River Jordan, uh, John the Baptist, you'll remember this very famous verse in the Bible, he points to Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world. Amen? So here Jesus it came. Now Jesus is publicly known as the Lamb, the Anointed One. And right according to the prophecy of Daniel 9, he was exactly on time. Now, you might think, well, 27 AD, how, do, how is that? Because uh, I heard that Jesus died when he was 33, and so three and a half years back, that, that wouldn't be 27 AD. But you need to know, my friends, that, that the dating system that we have today is not accurate when it comes to the exact birth of Jesus and life of Jesus. It is interesting to note that the year 27 AD can be confirmed in history because in the very chapter where you read about the baptism of Jesus, Luke chapter 3, is also the same chapter that gives us a whole list. And you know, God was knowing what he was doing when he was inspiring the writers of scripture. He gives us a whole list of people that were in power at that time. Uh, take notice of this, Luke chapter 3 and verse 1. Luke chapter 3, the end of the chapter, you read about the baptism of Jesus. Look at what it says in the first verse of this chapter. It says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea, uh, and the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, 
Tetrarch of Abilene. Now, in other words, if you want to know what year is 27 AD, you can very easily find it out because you have all these reference points. Okay, now, now let's go. And, and then what they did, of course, is they examined this. And, so, and, they, and, they, and you can ask the very simple question, what was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar? It's 27 AD, right? What, what was the time that Pontius Pilate was governor in Judea? 27 AD. And so you have all these reference points historically that show us exact time that Jesus was baptized. Fascinating. And hundreds of years in advance in Daniel, the prophet Daniel living between five and 600 years before Christ, gives us this amazing prophecy of exactly when this would happen. Luke chapter 3, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. God anointed his son Jesus to go forth and labor and preach the gospel and really bring the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of of God, into this earth. Uh, Mark chapter 1, take notice of the verse here as it talks about this transition from John the Baptist to Jesus. Um, We read here in verse 14 and 15, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is what? Fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this is the forerunner preparing for the very work of Jesus. Very, very interesting. According to Daniel 9, the Messiah, the prince, would come after 69 prophetic weeks, 483 years. And exactly there, in the year 27 AD, we see Jesus coming on the scene, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaching with power, healing the sick, casting out demons, and fulfilling the very prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. He was right on time. Jesus is never late, by the way. Jesus is never late. You know, people might, and and God is never late either. And sometimes you wonder in your own life, when is God going to come through for me? I'm going through these problems. I'm going through these trials. uh, You know, my, my life seems to be enveloped by darkness. But you need to know, my friends, that God is never late. He might, it might seem late for us, but God knows the perfect timing to break through in our lives. He knows the perfect time when his son came into this world. Amen? And so Jesus comes. But not only is the coming of Jesus prophesied as to when he would commence his public ministry, but Daniel chapter 9 also prophesies when exactly he would die. Fascinating. Take notice of verse 26. As the prophecy continues, Gabriel the angel, speaking to Daniel the prophet, says, And after the 62 weeks, or we should, some Bibles will even say after the 69 weeks, because basically um, the seven weeks was mentioned in the verse before, so we must count that with it. So basically, after the 69 weeks, um, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, let's just back up here so that we're all on the same page here. Daniel is in Medo-Persia. He was in Babylon, but now Medo-Persia has conquered Babylon, so he's in Medo-Persia. He knows that his people are about to return, and then the Gabriel comes to him and says, you're going to get a second chance, basically, to make things right, and you're going to give, I'm going to give you a period, a period is given by the Lord, of 490 years, 70-week prophecy, 490 years, beginning with the rebuilding of the city, 457 B.C., 
And then it mentions what's going to happen within this period, 69 weeks until Messiah the Prince. And by the way, you might wonder, what is those other seven weeks? Well, the Bible reveals, if you look at the prophecy in Daniel 9, that seven weeks were given to the rebuilding of the city. So basically, seven weeks would be 49 years, and that's exactly the time that they used to really rebuild the whole city. And then another 62 weeks on top of that, which gives us 69, unto Messiah the Prince, he was right on time. But then we have one week left in the prophecy, or in other words, one week would be seven days, or day-year principle, seven years. Now, and then the Bible says, let's just back up here for a moment, what would happen in that last prophetic week or in that last seven years? Listen to what it says. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Okay, in the middle of the week, he's going to bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Hmm, interesting. A week, seven years. What is the middle of a week or how, how, what, what time period are we looking at here? Three and a half, right? Three and a half plus three and a half is seven. So three and a half years. So catch this now. This is amazing. From the baptism of Jesus, 27 AD, there would go one week and he would confirm the covenant for many, with many during this week. We talked, by the way, this morning about what the covenant means. That's the agreement between himself and God, a beautiful thing between God and this people. But then in the middle of that week, in other words, after three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. My friends, when Jesus died on the cross, he was the lamb without blemish that was slain for you and me, and there was no more need of sacrifice because the lamb had come. Amen? Jesus died for you and me, and in the middle of the week, he caused, he caused sacrifice and offering to cease. There was no longer need to sacrifice animals. For thousands of years, they had been doing that, and they had all pointed forward to one person, to one point of time, and that was Jesus himself. And he came, and he was crucified on Passover day, and he caused sacrifice and offering to cease. There was no longer need to sacrifice a lamb because the lamb had come. Jesus came on time. He was baptized on time. He died on time. It was all within the plan of God. God had already prophesied this hundreds of years in advance, and we see it being fulfilled to the very latter. Powerful stuff. Uh, it is recorded that when Jesus was dying and he gave up and he, and, he, and, he, and he spoke those final words, it is finished, down in Jerusalem, they were about to slay the Passover lamb, but the earth quaked and the priest that was about to cut the throat of the lamb dropped his knife and the lamb escaped. Can you imagine? I mean, there was no longer need. God himself was showing that the sacrifice has now been made. And so what we see in the 70-week prophecy or 490 years, beginning with the restoration of Jerusalem, it brings us to Messiah the Prince, the anointing of Jesus at his baptism. It brings us to the very death of Jesus three and a half years later, which brings us to the year 31 AD. But we still have three and a half years left in the prophecy. And my friends, this is also a prophecy that shows very clearly that God is merciful and long-suffering and patient. Because even though his people, the very people who he had called to be a light unto the nations, even though they crucified the Son of God, they crucified Jesus, God still gave them, after the crucifixion of Christ, another three and a half years. In other words, 
probation for the Jewish nation as a whole did not end with the death of Jesus, but extended the death of Jesus by another three and a half years. Showing that God is willing to, even, even when they killed his very, his very son, he is still willing to give them another opportunity to repent. And you know what is so fascinating? When the disciples gathered together after the death and resurrection of Jesus, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he's standing there with his disciples, his twelve. And, and, and Jesus says to them, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to wait in Jerusalem because I'm going to give you a gift and that gift is the Holy Spirit. And he says, I, don't, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. You will receive the gift of the, of the Holy Spirit and you will go out and preach with great power. Now, isn't it fascinating that, God, that Jesus didn't send them immediately out into the Roman Empire, out into the world, but first he sent them to Jerusalem. Because he wanted to give the people, the Jews, another opportunity to repent, even after they had crucified the very Son of God. And so the Holy Spirit was poured out. You remember the story? They went forth preaching with great power and praised the name of Jesus. Thousands of people that had days before cried out, crucify him, crucified him, now with tears repented and became believers in Jesus. What do you say? God is patient. He's patient with you. He's patient with me. He's patient with his, with his people. And so what we see here, that another opportunity was given, and the gospel was spread in Jerusalem, but there was also persecution because there were leaders in Jerusalem, religious leaders, that had made up their mind. They crucified Jesus, and now they were set on persecuting the followers of Christ. And do you know when the 70-week prophecy ended? Very interesting. The 490 years terminated. It ended with the stoning of an individual by the name of Stephen in the year 34 AD. In the year 34 AD, the 70-week prophecy, 490 years, ended. And it's interesting, Stephen, which you can read about in the book of Acts, um, you can read about him uh, there where he basically... Um, came before the leaders of um, the, 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 the synagogue there in Jerusalem, and he, gave, he gives a powerful testimony. And what he does, and you can read it there, I believe it's chapter 7 of the book of Acts, you can read about how he's giving this powerful testimony of what God has done with his people. And he goes all the way back and he, and he reviews the whole story of Abraham and Moses and, and how, they, how they came to the promised land and the prophets that were sent among them. And he re reiterates about how God has led them each step of the way. And as they're hearing these things, they're getting more and more bitter, they're getting more and more angry. And then he comes to the point that he becomes very bold and he says, and you are responsible for the very death of Jesus, and they become so angered that they grab him, pull him out of the city, and they stone him to death. And that was the end of probation for the Jews as a nation. The 70 week, the 490 years ended. Now, that does not mean that Jews cannot be saved. Don't get me wrong. Individually, we can all come to Jesus and be saved. But as a nation, they were no longer a theocracy under God. And so what we see happening is a transitional period from the year 34 AD and onward. As a matter of fact, it's fascinating. When Stephen was being stoned, there was an individual that was there holding the clothing of those people that were stoning him. Does anyone know his name? Saul, which later became known as Paul. So he's watching, and the Bible says he consented to the death of Stephen. In other words, he agreed with it. He agreed with it. He 
persecuted the church. A chapter later, you read about him making his way to Damascus to take them captive to Jerusalem. But on his way, Jesus appears to him in a vision, and he's knocked off his, uh, off his horse. He's blinded, and he can only look one direction, and that is inside of himself, in his heart. And he realizes that, that he needs to repent, that he has been persecuting the very life giver. And so he repents, and his sight is restored, and he becomes a mighty apostle. I mean, the story of Scripture is incredible, how God intervenes in the lives of individuals. And so Paul, the one that consented to the death of Stephen, becomes the great preacher of righteousness. And he moves throughout the Roman Empire, raising up churches, and no one can stop him. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Won't it be an interesting day in heaven when Stephen and Paul meet? Stephen will be like, what is that guy doing here? And God will be amazing grace. Isn't that beautiful? Because God is good. And so, and so what you see here is, is a work that God is doing on behalf of his faithful ones. Now, even though in 34 AD, the time stopped for the Jewish nation to be a witness of him, no, no doubt God continued to use individuals, as we see in the early church and onward, followers of Jesus that were raised up in all different kinds of places that represented who he was. And so here we have a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, the coming of Christ, his anointing, his death, and the close of this period upon the Jews as a nation. But I want to, us to look a little bit deeper at what was going on here as it really gives us a picture of what we can expect in the near future. This is very interesting. Take notice that there's this pattern in Scripture. And this pattern shows us that when the Messiah is rejected, that this really results in destruction. Now, that happened in Daniel chapter 9 because when the people uh, basically rejected the Messiah, the ultimate consequence of that was that their city was destroyed as we read about in Matthew chapter 23 and 24. Or basically, Matthew chapter 23 and 24 gives us the prediction of that, which later happened in the year 70 A.D., so we're talking here about this period of this prophecy of Daniel 9 that led us to up to the year 34 AD, the stoning of Stephen. But if you add a number of years, you come to the year 70 AD. And what happened in 70 AD? The Roman army surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and they were going to destroy the city. The people had rejected the Messiah. They had rejected the followers of the Messiah. They had stoned Stephen. They had persecuted the early disciples. And now this judgment was coming upon them as a nation. And the Roman army had surrounded the city of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. But I want you to take notice how in Matthew 23 and 24, when Jesus was on this earth the first time, how he predicted that this was going to happen. So now we're back in the time of Jesus, shortly before he was crucified, and he gives a prediction of the city of Jerusalem being destroyed and what the followers of his followers would ex could expect in the near future. And this kind of prediction that he gives, which is first and foremost really applicable to the first century, also has applications even to the time prior to his second coming. And we're going to see how that all plays out as we go to Matthew 23 and 24. Take notice of Matthew chapter 23. Jesus is for the last time in the temple, the temple that was going to be destroyed in 70 AD. And this is what he says, Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 and 38. Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets 
and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. So just, just get the scene here. Jesus walks into the temple, and uh, he is being rejected and rejected and rejected. This is the last time that he's really in the temple. And suddenly he gives us this prophetic picture, and he says, you know what? So many times I've tried to gather you together. So many times have I tried to lead you to the truth, and prophet after prophet had been sent but prophet after prophet had been rejected. Now Jesus himself was pleading with them for the last time. They rejected him, and so he gives this prophecy. Not one stone is going to be left upon another in this place. He's, he's foreseeing and foretelling um, the very destruction of Jerusalem. Then his disciples come to him, and, and, and as he goes out, so he walks out after he's made the prediction, and his disciples are running after him, and you can just imagine, for the disciples, it was crazy what Jesus had just said. Come on, the temple. The temple was the pinnacle of the glory of Judaism. I mean, if there was something beautiful, if there was something grand, if there was something majestic, it was the temple. Now Jesus has predicted that the temple is going to be destroyed? They cannot believe it. As a matter of fact, they believe that if the temple is going to be destroyed, that must be the end of the world. And so look at what they say to Jesus here. Very interesting. Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you that not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be concerning the destruction of the temple? And look at the next question. Very interesting. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? In other words, for the disciples, when Jesus says not one stone is going to be left upon another here in the temple, the destruction of the temple, immediately they say, well, this must be the end of the world. <laughs> this must be the end of the world. So tell us more. When will this happen and when are you going to come again? Jesus had often spoken about his second coming. Now they wanted to know when is this going to happen? And what Jesus does in a remarkable way, in a marvelous way, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives us predictions of what was going to happen to Jerusalem intertwined with predictions of what was going to happen with the world at large before the coming of Jesus. So Matthew 24 are really predictions about the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of the Jesus the second time, right? The end of the world. And these are given like side by side and interwoven in each other in this remarkable chapter. And things about the destruction of Jerusalem, we can learn things from that as to how things are going to be just prior to Christ's second coming. Now, what are some of the things that he mentions then in Matthew chapter 24? We're not, we don't have time to look at all these verses, but if you read Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talks about an increase of war, verse 6. He talks about famine, diseases, and earthquakes, verse 7. He talks about lawlessness, verse 12. He talks about false prophets a number of times, verse 4, verse 5, verse 11, verse 24. And he talks about the gospel being preached in all the world, verse 14. So in Matthew 24, which is really kind of this, we could call it this end time sermon of Jesus, where he gives us signs concerning his coming and the end of the age. He says, okay, war is going to increase. There's going to be famine, diseases, earthquakes, lawlessness, false prophets. But also in the midst of all these, what we could call negative signs, there's also going to be a positive sign 
And that is that the gospel is going to be preached, not just to one nation, but to all the world. Amen? Now, simple question. Do you see those things happening today? Now, now some people will say, you know, yeah, interesting signs, but there have always been wars. There's always been famines. There have always been diseases. There have always been earthquakes. And all of this has always been. Now, now, though that is true to an extent, we must understand a very, very simple principle here. And that is that these things, as we get closer to the end, are going to increase in frequency. In other words, they're going to appear more and more. And they're going to also be more and more intense, greater. And that's exactly what we see. As a matter of fact, you can just go to any scientific source and you can kind of look up the extent of, for example, uh, wars or famine or earthquakes or diseases. And you can simply look, okay, when did these things happen in the past? How, you know, how big were the impact of these things? Versus, and, and then how, 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 what is, what is the, how is the increase of these things been in the last decade or a couple of decades. And if you do a little bit of a study on that, you will find very quickly that these things have increased in frequency and intensity in the last decades very, very strongly. You see, there was, of course, there have always been wars, but there has not been the mass destruction of people as we have experienced in recent decades and recent, and in the recent, this century and last century. For example, uh, you know, you think about famine and diseases, they have increased phenomenally. You think about earthquakes, yes, there have been major earthquakes in recent times. I mean, these signs are certainly taking place, even as I speak here right now. And the gospel has been preached and is being preached to, in many places where it has hitherto for or till now not yet entered, in places where it has not yet gone. Very fascinating. These are signs that we are seeing fulfill before our very eyes. Now, it's interesting. When you think about a sign, this is, by the way, a picture of, Nor uh, of Norway uh, and a couple of cities there, so you won't be able to read it. But when you're looking for signs, isn't it interesting that when you are traveling to a city where you've never been before, you will be looking for signs to, in order to know uh, that you're on the right road. And when you're looking at these signs, it will tell you the distance from that city. Now in Europe we work with kilometers, here you work with miles. But just, just think for example, if you're going to a city where you've never been before, and you see the name of the city on the sign, and then it tells you, for example, 200 miles, then you, you keep on that road, but the closer you get to your destination, the more signs are going to appear, right? So 200 miles to the city where you're heading. And then it might take a while before the next sign comes. But then the next sign comes. It says 100 miles. But as you get closer, the, the signs are going to increase. And it will say, you know, 50, 40, 35, 30, right? And so more and more signs. This is exactly how it works with the signs that we find in Matthew chapter 24. Yes, there's always been wars. Yes, there have always been earthquakes. Yes, there's always been famine. But as we are getting closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus, we are seeing an increase in frequency and intensity of these signs. And just as Jesus came the first time on time, so he is also going to come the second time on time. 
Now, we don't have a prophecy in the Bible that tells us the exact time of Christ's second return. As a matter of fact, Matthew chapter 24 tells us very clearly that no man knoweth the hour of the return of Jesus. So whenever someone comes up and says, you know what, I have found out from Scripture when Jesus is going to return. Well, that's not possible, my friends. We know the signs, but we don't know the exact day because the Bible tells us that we don't know. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus tells us, no man knoweth the day nor the hour except the Father. But we do know, and what has been given to us, are signs. Signs that tell us that Christ's coming is near, near indeed. Now, how does this then link all with what happened in Jerusalem, and how is what happened in Jerusalem somehow important for us today? Well, take notice of this verse. Luke chapter 21, which is, by the way, Luke chapter 21 is the equivalent or the synonymous chapter to Matthew chapter 24. So Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talks about the signs of his coming, and Luke, which is one of the other disciples, reports the same event in Luke chapter 21. And take notice what he says about Jerusalem and its destruction. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her, for these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. So Jesus, as he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, he says, you know what? When you see the armies, then know that destruction is soon coming. And he tells them to flee out of the city. Now, you know what happened? And this is a fascinating history. In the year 70 AD, Titus, which was the commander of the Roman army, surrounded Jerusalem, and it seemed as if Jerusalem was going to be doomed to destruction. There were many people within that city, including followers of Jesus, disciples that remembered the words of Christ that he said, when you see the, Roman, when you see the army surrounding the city, you know it's time to flee. But they couldn't flee. They were in the city, and, and, and the armies were surrounding the city. History tells us that for a reason unknown, the armies suddenly retreated and left. My friends, every single believer in Jesus left the city at that moment. They knew this is a sign. Jesus has foretold it. We are out of here because destruction is coming. The Jews and a majority of the people said, hey, you're crazy. They've left. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. And so the Christians left. All the followers of Jesus that believed in those words of Christ, the prophecy of Matthew 24, Luke 21, they left. It didn't take a long time until the Roman army returned, and this time they didn't leave. They surrounded the city. The city was in turmoil. There was no food. The water storage was running, running low, and eventually there was chaos in the city. The Roman army broke through, and they, oh, they didn't leave one stone upon another. They destroyed the city. They killed young, old, child, every. It was, it was a massive, massive destruction that came upon Jerusalem uh, at that time. And isn't it amazing that in the destruction of Jerusalem, not one Christian died because they believed Bible prophecy. Now, I don't know about you and me, but I know one thing, you and I have been given prophecy. And we have been given prophecy. And my friends, it's not just something that is just interesting theory. 
it's not just something that we say, well, that's fascinating. I want to study that a little bit more. My friends, it is more than a theological understanding. It is also life-saving. Prophecy is life-saving. Because, my friends, what happened to Jerusalem, Jesus said in, his, in, his, in this wonderful, wonderful prophetic picture that he gives us in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21. He says what happened in Jerusalem is going to be like what happens the very time before I come back again. There's going to be chaos. And, you know, we are seeing that this world is becoming a very chaotic place. We are living in uncertain times. I mean, wars are increasing. Terrorism is increasing. Famines are increasing. Uh, natural disasters are increasing. All the very things that Jesus spoke about are increasing, and we are seeing these things happen before our very eyes. And my friends, it is time to flee to Christ. Amen? It is time to build our lives upon the firm foundation of the Word of God. That is the only safety for us today. The safety is that we build our lives upon the revealed Word of God. Then we know that we are in the very place that God wants us to be. So that when the destruction happens around us, when uncertain times uh, hit us from all directions, we have a certainty because our lives are built upon the rock, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let us close with these very words here in Matthew chapter 7 because this is so applicable for you and for me. Jesus says... Therefore, whoever hears of these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the what? On the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. My friends, that's the experience that we are all to have. In Christ Jesus, we can build our lives upon the firm platform of the Word of God. That is our only safety. Prophecy is beautiful, it's fascinating, and it's also life-saving. Build your life upon the foundation of Bible prophecy. Christ has come the first time. He is going to come the second time. And I believe that we are very, very near the second coming of Jesus. The more I study my Bible, the more I study the prophecies of the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, I see that we are very near the second coming of Christ Jesus. I don't know the day, I don't know the hour, but I see the signs happening. I see other signs that we've studied about during the, in the course of our time together. We're seeing the, the nations in commotion. We're seeing the very prophecies of Revelation come to pass in our very midst. And we can know that the king is even at the door. He is coming. He is coming. And we need to build our lives upon the word of God. Whatever the word of God says, my friends, there is safety in following it. This should be our guide in everything. I mean, the way, the way we treat others. You know, the, 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 the day that we uh, worship on, right? The, the t- how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we, how we eat, how we dress, how we speak, everything, our entire life, our, all of our characters are to be shaped, our lives are to be shaped by Jesus Christ himself. And when he does that for us, do you know that you and I are actually fulfilling the very word of God in being a nation that will portray to others the love of God? What God wanted to do for ancient Israel and that didn't work, 
he still wants to do today through the followers of Jesus, you and me. Amen? Let's not disappoint him, my friends, but allow the Spirit of God to work in your life so that you can represent the character of God to those around you and so that you can call others to the wonderful prophecies of the Word and warn them for what is coming because things are coming upon this world. And true love will also share these things with others around us so that they will also be able to flee while there is still time. Flee to the Word of God. Amen? Well, let's have a word of prayer as we close together this first study. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the power of your word. And thank you that we can build our lives upon the rock Jesus Christ. And Lord, I thank you that you came exactly on time. Your son Jesus came exactly on time the first time. And we know that he will come again when when that perfect time has come. And until that time, Lord, we want to be faithful, faithful to the very end. And so give us your Holy Spirit, give us your power, and we thank you that we can choose to build our lives upon the rock. And Lord, if there's anything in our lives that is is a hindrance for us right now, I pray that you'll reveal it to us, that we will be able to, through your power, place it aside, surrender it to you, so you can work with us according to your will and your way. For this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.